This morning's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and chapter 12. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. As we are coming close to wrapping up a series on work and rest, uh, you have heard uh, detailed sermons about work and about rest, and now in the last two sermons, I want to impress upon you the centrality of God in whatever you do, in the who, what, where, when, why, how, uh, your whole life as one existence that is rendered to God. And when you boil everything down, if there is no God, then there is no meaning. But with God, everything matters, though you may not understand it or even like it. Let's pray. God, as we turn to your word, as we hear the preaching of it, we do pray that your spirit will be active in our hearts, allowing us to understand and to hear your voice and the things that you would have us to learn, that we would be changed more into your image, that we would be set free in the gospel, and that you'd have your way with us now. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let me read you something. Alexander the Great was not satisfied. Even when he had completely subdued the nations, he wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. And he died at an early age in a state of debauchery. Hannibal, who filled three bushels with the gold rings taken from the knights he had slaughtered, committed suicide by swallowing poison. Few noted his passing, and he left this earth completely unmourned. Julius Caesar, staining his garments in the blood of one million of his foes, conquered 800 cities, only to be stabbed to death by his best friends at the scene of his greatest triumph. Napoleon, the feared conqueror after being the scourge of Europe, spent his last years in banishment. And of course we could add other folks like Adolf Hitler who sought to conquer the world and ended up dying at his own hand. So what is accomplishment? What truly matters? And what will truly endure? Some people, in trying to leave their name in history, desire to be famous or even infamous as long as they feel that they have some mark. And we have to live with this strange tension that our souls have the imprint of God and are therefore very weighty. 
very valuable. And yet we are one of billions of people who have lived. And in that sense, we're just a speck. And God has put eternity into our hearts. But time rolls over us relentlessly. And death is inevitable. We can't yet fully have what our souls are made for. And therefore we have angst. Ecclesiastes says that we keep doing the same tired things over and over again in the pursuit of happiness. That we keep trying to find joy in the same ancient conventions that trick us, that promise us life because they are good things, but they don't deliver. And like you too, we say, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Which is why he says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And some of your translations will say, meaningless. The Hebrew word is havel, and it means smoke or vapor. It's the idea that it, that it looks tangible, but you can't grasp it. It cannot be controlled. It can't be handled and, hold, and held onto. It is possibly fleeting or obscuring your vision. So it has the idea of, of frustration. That you cannot control circumstances. They will control you. And so you have to decide what will be the thrust of your existence as a human being. What is the one unifying principle that governs all others? You might say, well, it's God. But do you live that way? If you did, you would have great freedom. You'd be a person of deep worship. You'd have the fruit of the Spirit and joyful work. Be filled with gratitude and a deep sense of rest as you wait and abide in Christ. I just watched a movie called Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. Anybody seen it? Steve Carell, Keira Knightley. Didn't do so well in the box office. Um, the premise of the movie is that there's a giant meteor that is on a collision course with Earth. And they've tried to stop it and they can't. And it is so massive that it is going to completely destroy the entire planet. And it's going to hit in three weeks. And so people are leaving their job. Some are leaving their spouses. Some are cussing their family members out because they've just given up. What's the point? Many are trying hard drugs. Others pour themselves in the promiscuity. Uh, There's all kinds of partying. And, uh, you know, some people seek family. Others seek lost loves. And, of course, as you're watching, you wonder, what would I do if I had three weeks left. And in this way, the movie, the purpose is to, is to kind of expose what you think is important, what you really love. And I have to admit that if I had three weeks left, diet and exercise are gone, right? Because I love sugar, and I know it's bad for me, so I try to, to limit my sugar intake, but I would be slurping soda around the clock. I would be eating Fruit Loops day and night, and donuts, the kind of they're packed with that jelly, you know, like the heavyweight donuts. And I would have like a, a flushed appearance and maybe oily appearance. And I would be feeling good for three weeks on my sugar high. You know, get my pancreas just kind of cranking it out and test its limits. Uh, but the bigger question is, do I believe there's a God? Because if there's no God, then I might be tempted to some much more serious things. I mean... If there's no judgment, 
There's no record. There's no punishment to come. Then maybe I would try all kinds of stuff. Because it doesn't matter. Because nothing would matter. And maybe I would kill. Or rape and pillage. You do whatever you want. Because it doesn't matter. Now listen, if it's true for the three weeks, then it's true for the whole life. Now if there is a God, it could be your finest hour, right? What opportunities to preach the gospel in the midst of the chaos of the end of days? That to spend time worshiping and pouring into to relationships and, and cherishing family and community... And just giving everything to God in that last great effort. Who needs sleep? You'll sleep later. If God is real, and those things matter in three weeks, then they matter in the lifetime. And that's the point of the movie, is to question your value system and your life overall. And just like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, Christ is returning and therefore, the Thessalonians, they left their jobs and they left their wives. And then he wrote Second Thessalonians. He said, no, no, listen, do not leave your job. Do not leave your wife. Like, we don't know when this is going to happen. Life will continue. But see, Paul's trying to give them that principle, the three-week principle, right? What would you do if he comes very, very soon? Well, that needs to inform your whole life. Time is relentless. Death is inevitable. These are themes in Ecclesiastes. And in the meantime, we have the vapor to deal with, the smoke. And in verse 4, he talks about a generation comes and a generation goes. Verse 5, the sun rises and sets. Verse 6, the wind in its cycle. Verse 7, the water in its cycle. Verse 8, it's never satisfied and therefore it is weary. It is never full. It is never complete. In verse 9, there is no new innovation that will change this reality. And yet, our souls are made for God. And God has put eternity into our very person. And so we are searching for meaning. We are searching for purpose. And it's our, it's our souls longing and looking for God. But He's not directly available in the sense that He will be in the consummation of his kingdom, when we see him face to face and he's wiping the tears from our eyes. And so we have this automatic operating system underneath our subconsciousness that's searching, that's looking for purpose and meaning and value. And it means that you're bouncing off circumstances and responding to, to events in your life. And therefore you're being tossed to and fro and driven by this system. And you have to stop and look at the system and analyze it and say, these things are not going to be the thrust of my existence. God and God alone. And so throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about how he purposely tested these different things, these different conventions that we seek meaning in to see if he could find satisfaction. In all these cases, he said, that, no, it will not suffice. And I'm going to give them to you briefly, five main ones in five W's. And I, I stole these W's from someone else, just so you know. Um, but are these some of the ways that you are trying to deal with your angst? First, Solomon says wisdom. 
I sought meaning and wisdom. And you might be trying to do this and bettering yourself. Maybe you want to feel smarter than other people because you feel empowered by that. Maybe you want the credentialing of some degree or something to that effect. And of course, God calls us to seek wisdom and to grow in his knowledge. It's not a bad thing, but it doesn't bring life. It's not the purpose of life. And if anything, he says, increase of knowledge means an increase of sorrow. So there is vapor. We can't guarantee results. We don't have control. I was once cleaning out a HUD house, a foreclosed house. My father had a contract to to empty these houses before they went back on the market. And I would help him when I was in seminary. And I remember crawling into the damp, dirty crawl space of a house that was full of boxes of books. And they were scholarly books. And the guy's name was in the front, and he had read all of them. There were notes, and they were underlined. And they were, they were you know, big, uh, well-known reference books. And I thought, what a body of, of knowledge. But it's under a house, and it's all moldy now. And they're going in the dump. And I couldn't help but think, of what's happened in this person's life? Where is he? Has he passed? Is he divorced? Is things falling apart? We don't know. There is a chasing after the wind. Another W, wine, and another one, women, which means everything's self-indulgent. And you might be seeking meaning in these things to parties or sensuality or pleasure, entertainment, leisure, comfort, food and drink, even drugs. And again, these are good things in the proper context and proper balance. We want pharmaceuticals for medical uses, right? Sex and marriage is God-given. But outside of the context, these things are destructive. And I watched a movie called The Fighter. Anyone seen The Fighter? It's about a boxer in Boston. By the way, if you ever want to know what it's like to plant a church in Philadelphia, you can watch that movie and you'll see what I was, I was dealing with. Um, this man was known for knocking down Sugar Ray Leonard. It's a true story. And they were shooting a documentary about his life, and he thought it was because of his boxing exploits, but they were really following his life because he got addicted to drugs. And he was destroying his life. And at one point, the most telling scene is they ask him why. And he says, you know, when you get high, it's like you're young again. And your whole life is ahead of you. You feel that sense of hope. And then it slowly fades And then you got to get high again. And to chase that sensation, that chemically induced, not even real, sensation. He starts sleeping wherever, not taking care of himself, can't hold a job, loses everything, sells everything, starts to do whatever he can to get money. People ruin their lives chasing what is quite literally smoke. Verse 8, the eye is never satisfied with seeing, the ear never filled with hearing. In self-indulgence, it is never enough. Solomon had 1,000 partners. And he says, it leaves you empty. And as I said last week, that's because that act is not an end to itself. It is pointing to a greater reality in union with Jesus Christ. And so it can never completely satisfy because it's a shadow of a reality, not the reality. 
Another W, Solomon poured himself into work. And of course, he had the means to do all kinds of things, build cities, things we could never dream of. And in working, we too try to prove ourselves. We try to achieve. We want to have value. And we've talked about that, and I've done sermons about that. We struggle with the thorns and the thistles. And another one, wealth. So there are your five W's. Wisdom, wine, women, work, and wealth. Solomon just said, well, I'll just get rich. And many commentators have noted the progression in chapter 2, where it goes from partying to wisdom to wealth as a typical college student. They go to college, they get out from mom and dad, and they start partying. And they have a good time. And then they realize, this doesn't really have any substance. What am I going to do? Well, it's time to get serious about my degree. I need to learn something. I need to better myself. I need to get a good job. And they focus on wisdom. And at some point, when the world's beat them up and they realize that they're, they're, they're just a person, then they say, well, I, I'm giving up on that too. I'm just going to get rich. I'm going to pour myself into getting money. And of course, money is linked to many of these in that sense. People will seek wisdom because they want to get money. People will work hard because they want to get money. But really, money is serving the self-indulgence, isn't it? I mean, why do you want the money? Is it for the kingdom of God? Or isn't it for the security and the leisure and the things that you think it can purchase you? The value and the meaning. This is heavily prevalent in our life because it's so intoxicating. And Solomon says in this book that the more money you have, there's a greater danger that it will try to consume you. You're at greater risk. The more money you have, the more you want to hold on to. And the more other people will try to take it from you. And by the way, the more you have, the more responsibility you have. James says that your silver will testify against you in the judgment because it's tarnished. Sitting on a shelf, not being used. It'll be testimony against you. So there is responsibility. You have gifts from God. He wants you to use them. You have funding. He wants you to use it for his purposes and his kingdom. And yet, as I taught, God wants you to grow in wealth. And he wants you to help other people acquire wealth. So that you will not be a burden on society. That you will be able to give. And so in all of these things, they are good things if they are in the right context and the right balance. I can remember sitting in Covenant Presbyterian as a college student, Phil Smulin, many of you know him, preaching a sermon every year at graduation. And he would give a graduation address. And it was so very different from all the other, get out there, seize the day, mix it up, and do your thing. It was live for God. Enjoy the simple pleasures that God gives, the gifts that he has, right out of Ecclesiastes. And I remember an illustration It's always stayed with me. He said that that Jesus Christ was never more present. He was never more filled with joy than when he was a newlywed sitting on the kitchen floor because they didn't have a table or chairs and they were shucking corn together. The simple things in life. The joy that God gives in his gifts. But these are out of your control. And they are not to be pursued as some sort of uh, fantasy that you be driven in unhealthy ways. So our primary purpose is to give our lives to God. To give our heart, soul, strength, and mind to God. To live in his presence. 
to have an uncomplicated posture of total trust and delight in him and what he gives and what he withholds. Chapter 12, it says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Since God is real, everything matters. It's all recorded in his mind. But you might not understand it. You might not like it. You certainly can't control it. Or even make sense of it at times. I just got off the phone with a friend of mine. He was a roommate uh, in the past. He's had a very difficult life. He married a woman. She quickly developed a mental illness. In that mental illness, she got recklessly promiscuous. Um, As he tried to work it out with uh, doctors and medicine and repentance in the church, it was going nowhere, and eventually he divorced. And then, since he was a pastor, the church fired him. So he lost his wife, and then he lost his job. But then one of his children got a terminal disease and declined and died. And I've been keeping up with him each month, just checking in on him, see how he's doing. He's a a great guy. Um, Only Jesus is good, but I tell you, he didn't deserve this. He didn't bring it on himself in that way, okay? He wasn't in some reckless rebellion. Um, It's just what's been put upon him. And I said... um, you know, how are you doing? What are you struggling with? He said, I, I, I don't get it. I don't understand God. Why? I said, I don't either. I mean, it's smoke, vapor. It's fleeting. It's obscuring. It can't be grasped. It can't be controlled. And I want to give you a couple points of application, therefore. As you think about working and resting in your whole existence directed toward God... And the first thing I want to say is that you need to accept your lot in life. Trust God without the control. That's part of what he's saying when he says, fear God and keep his commandments. That God knows what he's doing. And we don't. Everyone here has a portion or a cup of suffering that God has given to you and you will drink it. It'll be at various times and in various ways and in various measures and different amounts for different people according to what God has given to you. And His grace is apportioned. God is sovereign. He is in control. And we must receive from Him both the good and the trouble. But he's got you in his grace. He is trustworthy. By the way, what else are you going to do? You have no control. So surrender to the Lord. Obedience, by the way, is the most prudent thing to do as you have reverence in your relationship with God. As my friend said on the phone, he said, I didn't, I didn't seek this. I never thought this would happen. It blindsided me. I didn't do anything necessarily. And I said, I know. It, it, this is what God has put upon you. And he said, but we know, even though we can't say that if we live a good life that we'll be blessed, we can't say that, we can say you can make it a whole lot worse for yourself. That's true. 
you can make things a whole lot worse. So obedience is prudent and wise as you seek to accept from God's hand good and bad. Now, by the way, I'm not saying that you can't improve your circumstances. Given the opportunity, by all means. But you have to keep the perspective that God has something for you. And you can't be driven by these other pursuits where you think you'll find happiness. Because the guy who did all of that to the excess says, no. You won't be satisfied. Your soul will be satisfied in God. My next point of application is to be faithful. Just put one foot in front of the next. Don't worry about the results. Don't worry about the reasons why. Just be faithful. And I want to give you two areas. The first is faithful to God. And I want to talk about prayer. A private and corporate relationship that we have through prayer with God. And I would be remiss if in this series on work and rest I didn't say anything about prayer. And if I had time to preach more sermons, I would probably preach a whole sermon on how prayer helps you enter into God's rest. Prayer is taking refuge in God. It is confessing your sins. It is acknowledging His sovereignty, His love, His glory, His character, His grace. It is an opportunity to commune with God, to bear your grievances, to accept His will, to cry out for help. Prayer is an opportunity to intercede for others, that it is a means of grace. God has instituted it to actually change you, your heart, circumstances in your life, and in others. So be faithful. In prayer, seek the Lord each and every day and surrender your heart to Him. Next, I want to say be faithful to seek the shalom of society. And I mentioned that last week, this idea of Sabbath, rest, and all of the structures around us, which means that you serve your boss as unto the Lord. And if you're an employer, then you treat your employees well and you let them have fruit for their labor. That you love your family, not just for your sake, but for Jesus' sake. That you would sharpen those kids into arrows, the psalm says. And then you have to let them go to do their work in the kingdom. Be faithful to seek race relations and social justice and the things that are plaguing our society as you repent. Knowing, once again, that life is out of your control. So listen, there's the idealist that comes along and says, I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to change the world. And Ecclesiastes says, no, no. You're just one of billions, and it's out of your control. But don't be the fatalist. Don't be the one who says, I can't do anything. What's the point? Because God has called you to seek wisdom. He has called you to work for His glory. He has called you unto relationship and community. He is calling you to acquire wealth and to use it for the sake of good. So, in these ways you have the idealism and the fatalist. And all you can do is take steps. You know, after the last service, a school teacher came up to me afterward and said, this was good stuff. Because, you know, as a school teacher, I can promise you, I understand vapor. Because I don't know if I'm making a difference at all. And all I tell myself is, show up and put one foot in front of the other. 
Trust the results to God. You don't need to understand it. Receive and live in this tension in faithfulness to our God. You know, in the, in the days of Rome, when they were persecuting and killing Christians, some people said, I'm going to go and become a martyr for Jesus Christ that I might have a better resurrection. And they go into the face of the war machine that is Rome and they get ground up and they deny Christ. Others who had no intention of being martyred were snatched up by Rome and persecuted and ended up dying for their faith, professing Jesus Christ to the end, singing hymns as arrows pierced their bodies. And so the early church came up with this idea that you can't choose martyrdom. Martyrdom has to choose you. And I say, so it is with your giftedness and your desires to change the world and the the, the use of your resources. Just be faithful. And God, for whatever reason, chooses to use people and pass over others. And that's okay. If God uses you in some mighty way, glory to God. If you live a simple life and work with your hands and worship the Lord, glory be to God. It's all in his hands, folks. I want to tell you a crazy dream I had. You ready? Now, I by no means say that this is like some vision. You know, that, that's, I don't believe that happens because we could add it to the scripture, right? Um, and I believe the canon is closed. So this, was, this came out of my own mind, I guess. But it, it was really sanctifying. Um, I, in this dream, died. And I entered into this, uh, this kind of hallway. It was very wide and sterile. And I was met by a tall, slender fellow with dark hair. And he said, come, let's find a place for you. And as I walked down this corridor, this window appeared. And in the window, there were like these, you know, I don't know if they were Saxons or Vikings or some people from that period of time. And they were drinking and they had their weapons and they were hanging out. Of course, I have interest in history and there was something intriguing about it. And it was an an intuition that said, these are my ancestors. And, you know, is this where I belong? And as I was pondering this, another window started to appear. This is a real dream. I didn't make this up. Um, and in this, and in this window, I see a bunch of friends from high school and college. And, the, and they're dancing. It's a party. And there's lights, and, it's, and the lights are low. But, you know, they're having a good time, and maybe they're drinking. I don't know. But as, as I walk by them, I'm thinking, they're th- Dave, Dave, come on in here. But there's another window coming, and I'm still intrigued. And as I walk... I see uh, my extended family, and they're in a yard, and there's a barbecue going, and they're hanging out, and they're playing horseshoes, and, and kids are running around, and, and I think, oh, this is, this is more the place for me. This is where I belong. But then there's another window, and I can't help but wonder. And as the next window comes up, it's, it's a beautiful garden, and there is the most beautiful woman that my mind could contrive. And, and, I, and I'm... I look at her and she looks at me as if I'm the answer, okay? And it, it's intoxicating. It kind of compels me for a second. And the guy can tell, you know, that, that, that this has more interest than the others. And he says, um, uh, you know, she, she is made for you. Uh, she, will, she lives for you to please and satisfy you. And I thought in that second... Is there anything greater than me? 
And I said to him, where's Jesus? And he said, oh, him, right this way. And we start to walk, and immediately I'm into some like glass elevator, and it starts to rise up through the sky. And I look at these, and these rooms are getting smaller and smaller, and I see that there are hundreds and thousands and so many rooms. And they're sitting on some kind of underworld, you know, with smoke. And I said, what are those places? And he says, they're all the same place. And then I come to these doors, and he says, right through there, I can go no further. And I begin to push the doors open, and there's like a a beam of light, and I wake up. And I wrote it down because it was such a crazy dream. And again, I don't think it's a vision, but man, it was sanctifying, right? How we get so quickly confused and deluded by what we think is going to bring us happiness and peace. But listen, it's all found in God. Jesus Christ is a reason for our existence. And to him our soul belongs. We've just witnessed a solar eclipse. And I'm sure there are lots of pastors giving lots of illustrations today about the solar eclipse. So I just happen to be one of them, okay? That's a normal cosmic event. Happens all over the place. But typically once in your lifetime, if you stay in one locale. And isn't it curious that the sun is 400 times greater than the moon? But the moon is 400 times closer than the sun. So that in these events, the two circles match up perfectly in the sky. And everything goes dark and you feel the coolness and the bugs start making their noise, and, and there's, you know, this odd display. I think it's a sign of God's intelligent design. It's one of the many that we have, that God is in the midst of all this frustration and smoke and vapor. He's saying, I am here, and I am real, and I've got this, and I've got you in the gospel. You know what's a greater sign? The greatest sign is the sign of Jonah. Where Jesus Christ, having paid the penalty of your sin and removing the wrath of God on the cross, goes into the belly of the earth for three days and then is brought back to life. God's greatest demonstration that he loves you, that he knows what you're dealing with, that he can remove all the suffering and all of the confusion and all of the vapor and frustration and meaninglessness of your life, that he is God Almighty. Listen, praise the Lord. He didn't leave you as orphans in this sea of vanity. But he sent his son to rescue you from all the meaningless and destruction and to give you the hope of glory and the eternal significance of knowing him who is unknowable. You will never extinguish the glories of God in your search. And one day there will be no more chasing after the wind, but we will be made perfectly blessed into the worthy pursuit of going deeper and deeper into the heart of God for all eternity because of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that though this life is confusing and difficult, that you have overcome the world, that you have given us this hope of glory, that you interfered in our life and you brought us out of the pit and you have redeemed our souls and you will take us to be with you forever and forever and we have no concept of how glorious it will be. Help us, Lord, to see more of your beauty, more of your glory, that our lives will be changed here and now, away from the things that confuse us, away from the good things that we make too important, that we would focus on you and that our very existence would be rendered unto you in every way. 
that Jesus Christ be glorified in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.